listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. All right, well, today, this morning, we're going to take a short little detour from our Colossians series. And uh, about three days ago on Thursday night, I was invited to speak for Thursday Night Live at Chi Alpha at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. I always love speaking to college students. It's probably my favorite context to speak in. You know, I can't really do kids ministry, I don't think. Uh, I don't really love speaking to teenagers. Sorry if you're a teenager. And adults, you know, I can take it or leave it. But, uh, but college students just soak it up, man. I just, and there's almost nothing you can say that's going to throw off a college student. And um, I preached a message on, on Thursday night at UL called The Faith to Doubt. And it was a message that I specifically crafted for those students there. But as I was working through the message, I, I just felt strongly like my church needs to hear this message. I feel like just over the last few months, I've actually had numerous conversations with uh, individuals, just one-on-one, and this issue just keeps coming up. And I just felt uh, impressed to share this message with you this morning. So we're going to take a short detour from Colossians, and we're going to look at a passage in James chapter 1. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to look at James 1. The title of the sermon is The Faith to Doubt. And here in James 1, we're going to look at what I believe is one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, misconstrued passages in the entire Bible. If I were to sit here and think about it for a little while, I could probably come up with 8, 10, 12 different passages in the Bible that I, I, I think are oftentimes misunderstood and misapplied. And there's all of these passages, but I think out of all of them, this one here would definitely be in my top five. And so it's James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8. And then I want us to pause and and pray. James chapter 1, look at verse 6. James writes this. And he's talking about prayer. He says, but when you ask, when you ask God, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They're double-minded and unstable in all they do. I want us to pray. As we pray, let's remember uh, Ray Hargrave, who's battling some health issues, as well as Wayne Perry and his family that are going through some health issues. Let's just join together right now for them and also uh, in regards to this message. Heavenly Father, We're grateful for your presence here this morning, for your goodness to us. You are a good father, and your purposes towards us are always good. Right now, we just lift up these individuals, Ray Hargrave and Wayne Perry, Betty Perry, Lynette Broussard, that family, God, just touch them, strengthen their bodies, heal them. Be with Ray, God. I pray for a breakthrough for Ray Hargrave. Continue to move in his body. Others, Lord, that are struggling physically in our church. Be with them and bless them. And now, Lord, as we look at your word today, right now we consecrate this time to you. We set it aside. Anything that would distract us, whether externally or internally, God, any distraction, potential distraction, we just intentionally choose to set that aside right now. And we, as an act of worship, We place ourselves humbly under your authority 
And we're asking you, even in spite of a flawed communicator, that the Holy Spirit would speak and that we would receive your word deep into our beings and let it sprout and grow and bear wonderful fruit for the kingdom of God. Your kingdom be established. Your agenda be done in Jesus' name. Amen. So James says that we're supposed to ask God, and when we ask God, that we shouldn't have any doubt. We're to ask God with no doubt. And that if we ask God without doubt, we're going to receive. But if we ask God and we do have doubt, well, then we're not going to receive anything. This passage, along with several others that are like it in the New Testament, it lays at the foundation of what I think is the source of major struggle for a lot of Christians. And it's this model of faith as certainty. That in other words, as you're praying for something, if you're believing God for something, the more convinced you are, the more psychologically certain you are that it's going to happen, people assume, well, that's, that means the more faith you have. And so if this is what faith is, then that means your faith is only as strong as you are free from doubt. And it's, it's the model of faith I think most people actually have. But one of the things I hope to show you today is it's actually a profoundly unbiblical model of faith. And yet it, it just messes with so many people's minds. I've seen it cause so many problems, this, this idea that faith is being psychologically convinced and certain of what you're praying and believing for. For example, throughout my life, I've known people, and maybe you've known people, who absolutely refuse to ever go to the doctor. They will not go to the hospital for anything because they believe that it shows a lack of faith that God's going to heal them, at least supernaturally that he's going to heal them. And so if they go to the doctor, they, they, it's expressing doubt. I mean, you're admitting that maybe God's not going to heal you supernaturally. And so they refuse to go to the hospital no matter how sick they are. And you know what? That makes sense if this is what you think faith is. If that's what faith is, that logically follows. To take it even a step further, I've known people throughout my life who will say that uh, not only when you pray for something, not only should you have no doubt that God um, is going to answer your prayer, they say you should have no doubt that God has already answered your prayer. That you should even ahead of time just go ahead and name it, claim it, confess it, and start walking around as if it's already true in spite of any evidence to the contrary. So these are folks who, you know, would say, hey, I'm already healed. I'm healed in Jesus' name even though the doctor's telling them that there's still cancer there. And they think, well, why would I give the evidence of cancer more authority than the Word of God? And they think that the Word of God tells them that they're already healed. For example, there's a guy I know of uh, back in college who was legally blind. He, he, he would wear these really thick Coke bottle glasses, blind as a bat. But he came under this teaching that told him that you've got to already confess and claim it and walk around and act like it's already true. And the more you do that, the more faith you have and, and your prayers answered already. And so like for two or three months, he walked around without his glasses telling people, I'm healed. I can see in Jesus' name. And during that time frame, he got in two car accidents, flunked every test that he took because he couldn't read the books that the tests were based on, just about flunked out of school. 
And yet the whole time he's going around telling people, I can see. My, my eyes are fine. I'm healed in Jesus' name. And he's like Mr. Magoo driving around, crashing into everything. But you see, you can understand why a person would do this if this is their interpretation of James 1. Something's off here. I'm just telling you, this is me. Something's off with this idea. First of all, when you look at the Gospels, Jesus never asked people to fake it like that. Never. There's a story where Jesus prays for a blind man. And after he prays for him, he asks the man, can you see? He didn't say, confess that you can see. He just said, can you see? And the guy was honest. He said, well, sort of. I could see people, but they kind of look like tree trunks walking around. And Jesus didn't say, come on, man. Where's your faith? You just got to confess it, name it, and claim it. No, Jesus said, let's just go back to it. Let's pray again. God never expects you to pretend. God never expects you to play, to play psychological games with your own mind. Something is off with this interpretation of the passage. Think about it. If this is true, let's just do a couple thought experiments. If this is true, that if you ask God for anything without doubting, you're going to receive it. Does that mean that if you right now pray a prayer and you say, God, I am praying and I am believing and I am expecting that by midnight tonight, North Korea is going to become a democracy. And you pray that with 100% certainty, not a single doubt in your mind, you're totally convinced it's going to happen. Does that mean it's going to happen? That it has to happen? You know, aren't there some other variables in this equation? Does God just take everybody in North Korea and turn them into robots? Because you prayed a prayer that was certain of something? Something's off. Or what about this? Let's say at the end of our service today, we had a, a nice prayer time like we always do right here. And I invite you to come forward for prayer. And let's say that there's a guy in here, and we're going to call him Bill. Now, if your name is Bill, please forgive me ahead of time. I always try to pick names that I... I don't think somebody in the room has, and it always backfires because I'll choose something outlandish. Like a few months ago, I, I, I said, uh, let's, let's say there's a lady named Agatha. Of course, there's no Agathas here. And there was an Agatha in the room. So I just give up on all that. We're going to call him Bill. And just forgive me if the name's Bill. But at the end of the service, let's say Bill comes forward for prayer, and he kneels down right here. And the thing about Bill, he's single, and he has a crush on a young lady named Jill. Forgive me if your name's Jill. Bill and Jill. And so Bill's over here, and he's praying. And the thing about Bill, he's not just, he doesn't just have a crush on Jill. He's obsessed with Jill. Like he can't stop thinking about Jill, and his whole goal is he wants to one day marry her. And so Bill's praying, man. He's praying with 100% certainty. There's no doubt in his mind. And he's praying and believing that Jill will one day become his wife. And at the same time Bill is over here praying, Jill is over here. And Jill's praying as well. And she's praying without any doubt. She's totally convinced. But she's praying that God protect her from Bill. Because Bill's a stalker. Now you got two individuals here who are both praying. They're totally convinced of what they're asking God for. Not a single doubt. 100% certainty. And they're both praying for total opposite outcomes. You see... James 1 is going to have to be falsified for somebody. Let's hope it's falsified for Bill in this case. But something's off here. It's at the foundation of this model of faith that says the more psychologically convinced and certain I am of this outcome, the more faith I have. 
So it looks something like this. I want to show you uh, this slide on the screen. This is what you might call a faithometer. And this is how many people understand faith. So here's your faithometer, your faithometer. And over here on the left side, this would be like you have no certainty at all, like total doubt, like 0% certainty. You totally doubt it's going to happen. And then on the other side, this is 100% certainty. There's no doubt in your mind. You're completely convinced that it's going to happen. So that's your faithometer. And many, this is a little cartoonish, but a lot of people, this is how they kind of think about faith. And so if this is how we think about faith, then it reduces God to being sort of like this meter maid. And God just goes around checking everybody's faithometer to see where your faith level is at. And if this is how it works, you know, we have to wonder because we're not really told. Well, how much faith do you need to have? How much certainty do you need to have in order to get saved? You know, is it 51%? Will that cut it? Maybe it's a little more. Maybe it's like 70%. Or maybe you've got to crank it all the way up to 90%. Or God forbid, maybe it's even 100% certainty. But we're not told. We don't know. We're not even given access to our faithometer to even see where our faith level is at. But there's got to be some type of percentage or quantity that we've got to crank it up to. Or perhaps maybe it works like this. Maybe you've got to crank up your faithometer to 51% to get saved. But then if you want to get healed of something, you've got to crank it all the way up to 75%. And then... If you can crank it up to 95%, well, now you're going to get the Cadillac you've been praying for. Or if you can get it all the way to 100%, now you can change the politics of North Korea. Is that how it works? Or what about this scenario? Let's say that right now, today, because it's Sunday, let's say that your faith level is at 51%, but tomorrow you go back to work, it's Monday morning, your faith level drops to 49%, then you get in a car accident and die. Man, tough luck. Unfortunately, now you're not qualified. You see, something is off with this, with this model of faith. It really is, if you think about it, it is a, a form of salvation by works. The work is that you're trying to talk yourself into it. You're trying to make yourself convinced enough. You're like the lion in the Wizard of Oz. I do believe, I do believe, I do, I do, I do believe. If I could just crank up my faith level enough, then I'll get saved. But if I can't, then I won't be. If I can crank it up enough, then I'll get healed of this headache. But if I can't, then I won't. And I've seen it wreak havoc in people's lives so much. I've seen people lose their faith over this, their actual faith over this type of nonsense. Because if this is what faith is, if faith is being psychologically certain of something, well, one of the things that that means is that, well, doubt must be the enemy. All doubt must be evil. It must be sinful to have doubt. And so people that have this kind of model of faith, they will avoid all doubt like the plague. Because so much hangs on not doubting. So these are folks who will only listen and hear things or only be willing to listen and hear things that they already agree with on everything. They'll only read things that that they already agree with. They'll only hang out with people who already agree with them on every conceivable issue. Their whole life is structured around the rightness of their existing beliefs and trying to keep themselves convinced of those very beliefs. And so they can't even have calm, rational, intelligent discussions 
about matters of faith because so much hangs on not doubting. You know, I, got, I can't risk my faithometer dropping any lower. So something's off with this interpretation of James 1. But it's there in the Bible. It's, it's, it's in the Word of God, so we can't pretend like it's not there. We've got to deal with it. So I want to deal with it with you this morning in just a moment. I want to take a deeper look at James 1 in just a few moments. And we're going to look at what, what is really happening here in this passage. So James says, okay, if we ask God without doubt, we're going to receive. But if we ask God and we do have doubt, we're not going to receive. What do we do with this? Before I get into it, I want to give you two preliminary words that are very important. The first one is this. It's very important when we read the Bible that we understand that in the Bible, oftentimes the Bible uses what's called hyperbolic language. There's a lot of hyperbole in different passages of the Bible, exaggeratory language. We know that this was extremely common in ancient Mediterranean cultures, but it, it was especially common in ancient Jewish culture. And even to this day in Jewish culture, they often use exaggeration in their, in their daily dialogue. And they understand it's not meant to be taken literally, but they use it to make an emphatic point. So like when I tell Reagan, because she's, she's, she's the one of my kids who usually has a messy room. If I tell Reagan, <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to apologize later. If I say, Reagan, I've told you a million times to clean your room. Well, I'm using hyperbole there. You know, it's not like I'm literally counting, and this has been literally the one millionth time, as opposed to 999,999 times. No, I'm just... I'm exaggerating. I'm using hyperbole in order to make a forceful point. And the point is just simply this. Uh, I've told you a lot to clean your room. Reagan, smile. Look at me, baby. <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> All right. Let me get back on track here. So, so there's, there's some hyperbole that we see oftentimes in certain passages of Scripture. You know, for example, in, in, uh, in Proverbs 22.6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he gets older, he will not depart from it. That's an example of some hyperbole happening. Now, that's a very important proverb. I use it every time I dedicate a child. But I've known parents throughout my life who walk around ashamed, blaming themselves, because they had a child that departed from the faith, and they thought that they had a, a mathematical formula here that told them that if they just raised their kid right, they couldn't possibly go astray. But there's hyperbole taking place in that verse. What the writer's just simply saying is, look, it's really important to raise your kids right. But of course they have free will. Of course they could fr freely choose to go astray. So there's some hyperbole that, that we see a lot of times in the Bible. We don't even catch it. Like we use exaggeration in our culture, not nearly as much as ancient Jewish culture. And so some of that is happening here in this James passage. A second thing is this, though, and this one's even more important. It's so, so vitally important that when we are reading the Bible and we come across a verse or a passage that we're trying to interpret, it's so important that we look at the context of that verse or that passage. I have, in many books, in many sermons, I've heard, I've read people who take this passage in James and they'll expound upon it, and the vast majority of the time, context is left out of the passage. 
Every, listen to me, this is important. Every verse of the Bible needs to be interpreted within the passage that it's found in. And every passage needs to be understood within the entire chapter and within the entire book that it's found in. And every book of the Bible must be understood within the context of the entire canon of Scripture. And the canon of Scripture has to be understood in light of the culture and the literary genres that are included. So context, every verse of Scripture is inextricably tied to its context. You can't just take a verse of the Bible. I mean, you can do this, but you would be wrong. You can't just take a verse of the Bible, pull it out of context, stick it to the wall, and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. You've got to respect the context. And what happens with this particular passage is that if you just back up and look at the context, in this case, if you just look at the verse before, the verse right before, verse 5, it changes the whole meaning of the passage. So let's now look at this passage with verse 5. Let's back up one verse. Now watch what happens here. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, everybody say wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously without finding fault. And it, meaning wisdom, will be given to you. But when you ask for what? Wisdom. You must believe and not doubt. So you see it's clear. James is specifically talking about wisdom. He's not giving us a blank check. He's not talking about how to change the politics of North Korea. He's not talking about how to ensure somebody's going to become your spouse. He's specifically talking about asking God for wisdom. And he says, when you ask God for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt this. That number one, that God gives generously. In other words, God wants to give you wisdom. He's not holding it out on you. He, if somebody really humbly seeks God for wisdom, God can't wait to pour it out. I dare you to just ask God for wisdom on a regular basis. He's going to pour it out upon you. So James says, don't doubt that. He's going to give you wisdom if you ask for it. And also, don't doubt that God doesn't find fault with you. When you come before God humbly in a heart of repentance, God forgives. He's lavish with his mercy. He's not going to eternally hold a grudge against people who humbly seek him for, for righteousness. So God doesn't find fault. So, so in other words, the faith, the trust, is to be in God's character. If we will just simply trust that God loves us, he has our best interest at heart, he wants to lead and guide us, he's not finding fault, he doesn't hold a grudge, and he can't wait to give us wisdom, James says, guess what? You're going to receive it. But if you doubt all of that, if you doubt, that, that, if you doubt God's good character, or if you think that God is holding a grudge against you, well, then we're going to be like a wave tossed about by the sea. Why? Because we're living without the wisdom of God. We have no direction. We have no bearing. So he's specifically talking about wisdom. He's not telling us that we need to be convinced about things that we can't possibly be certain of. What a torturous game to play. I, I hope you're getting this. Faith is not a faithometer concept. It's not about psychological certainty. Faith is about trust in another's character. It's relational trust, pledging yourself to someone else, just like marriage. When you walk down the aisle to get married, and you stand in front of that person, and you say your vows, and you commit to them and pledge yourself and say, I do, you are actually exercising faith in the biblical sense of the word. 
You're saying, I'm here and I'm trusting you. I'm pledging my life to you. You're pledging your life to me. I'm pledging to trust you and to walk trustworthy before you and vice versa. You're making a, a relational commitment to that person based on trust in spite of the fact that you can't be certain everything's going to work out the way you want it to. When you get married, you can't be psychologically certain that you're going to live happily ever after. You have no idea what life's going to throw your way. You may go through some serious difficulties in marriage. Sometimes life itself throws difficulties at you. And so it may not always be happily ever after. And you can't be certain of that, but you're willing to take the risk. You, you can't even be psychologically certain that you're even going to remain married. At least logically you can't. Something like 45% of all marriages end in divorce. In the Bible Belt, it's 8% higher than that. So you can't even be psychologically certain everything's going to work out. But you're willing to take the risk. What you're saying is, I have enough evidence of this person's good character and our compatibility that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the risk, I'm going to take this step, and I'm going to pledge myself to this person to trust them and walk trustworthily before them and vice versa. And that's what faith is. It is an action based on relational trust in spite of the fact that you can't be certain of the thing that you're acting upon. And it always involves some measure of risk. And if you think about it this way, we actually act in faith virtually every day of our lives. We just don't think of it as faith. But whenever you board an airplane, you can't be psychologically certain that the pilots are sober. You can't be psychologically certain that there's not a terrorist on board. But it's a pretty safe bet it's going to be okay. So you take the risk and you board the airplane. When, when a couple decides they're going to have a child, you can't be psychologically certain that everything the child's going to work, that that child's going to turn out okay. But you're willing to take the risk. Whenever you change careers, you can't be psychologically certain it's going to be a good move for you. It may end up becoming a total nightmare. But if you have enough trust in the process and in, in the advisors in your life, you're willing to take the risk. Faith is acting in spite of the fact that you cannot be certain about the thing that you're acting upon. And such, such is the case with everything, including our beliefs. If you believe that God exists, that's an act of faith. If you believe that God doesn't exist, that's also an act of faith. Because it just may turn out that he does exist and that there's a whole lot at stake here. If you believe that Jesus Christ, the real historical person, literally physically rose from the dead, well, that's an act of faith because you're going beyond the evidence. But I believe it's a reasonable act of faith because you're going with the evidence. But if you believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's also an act of faith because it may just turn out that it's true. He truly is the risen Lord of all. And it may just turn out that if you looked at the evidence more thoroughly, you would be convinced of it yourself. But it all involves an act of faith, stepping out when you can't be certain of it. I, I, I don't believe there's a person alive on this planet right now who doesn't practice faith. The, matter, the question is just simply, what are you putting your faith in? And who are you putting your faith in? Now, I want to close with one last thought here. I know I've given you a lot to chew on today. I want to give you one more thing to chew on. Coming at this from a different angle. 
and this is so important. I want you to listen to this because this is really what drove me to want to preach this message to you. There's a time to doubt and there's a time to shut doubt off. Here's what I mean by that. If faith is relational trust, pledging yourself like a marriage, there's a time to doubt and there's a time to shut that off. When you're dating someone, just to keep it in this marriage arena, when you're dating someone, that's the appropriate time to ask some big questions. Like, you better be asking these questions. Like, do they have good character? Are they honest? Is their faith genuine? Do we have a basic compatibility with one another? The things that bug me about this person, are they deal breakers? Or can we work through it? You know, they, they snore. Can we work through that? Or is that a deal breaker? So, so as you're dating someone, this is the time to ask these kinds of questions. And if you have doubts, this is the time you need to be exploring these doubts. So there's a time to doubt. But listen to me. When you say, I do, when you commit, when you jump in, it's time to shut doubt off. Because it no longer does any good to live in this theoretical world of possibly what it would be like to not be married to one another. Because you've already bought the farm. You've already said I do. You've already committed. You've already pledged yourself. And when I see couples who do marriage with one foot out the divorce door, living in this theoretical possibility of possibly not being married, it only serves to erode the marriage. There's a time to doubt. There's a time to shut doubt off. Now, that doesn't mean as you're married, you're not going to have questions. Of course, you're going to have questions. Do they know how to fix a toilet? You know, can they change the oil in my car? Or do they at least know where the lube place is? Uh, who's going to take out the garbage? Can they balance a checkbook? You're still going to have some questions. You're going to still have those types of things. But you see, now they're not deal breakers. Why? Because you've already dove into this thing. You've said, I do. And you have committed. There's a time to doubt. There's a time to shut doubt off. When couples constantly do marriage with one foot out the divorce door, what happens is it just sucks the life out of the marriage. And I'm going to tell you the truth. This is not just true of marriage. It's true of a lot of things. There's a depth of love and fulfillment that you can only experience when you're fully invested. Did you hear what I said? Are you just thinking about it, or did you hear it? There's a depth of love you can only experience when you're fully invested in the thing. And I've known throughout my ministry, I'm just speaking broadly over years of experience with a variety of couples. When couples come into marriage counseling because they want to fix their marriage, a lot of times immediately when they start talking, you can see that they're actually having faith that their marriage won't work. Why? Because all they think about and all they talk about when it comes to the spouse is how bad they are and how this is not going to work and the marriage is going to fall apart because nothing's going to change. They're actually having faith that their marriage is not going to work. See, if faith is a relational commitment, a relational trust, the question is, okay, what direction are we moving in? And so much of that has to do with what kind of thought patterns we're constantly replaying in our minds. 
If we're going to move in the direction of health and restoration, it's got to start with the thoughts that we're thinking. We've got to get our thoughts right if we want the marriage to get fixed and get right. And there's, it's some of the most beautiful, profound realities can only be experienced when you're fully invested in the thing. And until you're fully invested, it's not going to work. Are you hearing me? It's the same thing with our relationship with Christ. Listen, there is a time to doubt. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're listening to this, watching this. Maybe you're here. And, and you're, you're like, I'm not really sure if I really want to invest myself in Christianity. I'm not really sure if I want to completely give myself to Christ. I've got some big questions. Maybe, maybe you have questions like, how can a rational person really believe Jesus rose from the dead? Maybe you have questions about the Bible. You have questions about all kinds of stuff. And I just want to affirm you in this. It's okay to explore those doubts and questions. And God gives us space and time to do that. And if you're in that place, I'd love to have some conversations with you because I think I could perhaps help you a little bit on this exploration. And there's some great resources that I could potentially put in your hands to help you explore the doubts that you're going through. So there is a time to doubt. And God gives us space and time to do that. But listen to me, there's also a time to commit. Where you say, you know what? I may not have 100% psychological certainty about all these things, but I have enough evidence and I have enough light and I know enough to commit and to say this is the most reasonable, rational way to live, to live for Christ, and I'm going to jump in with both feet. And here's why I say that, and it comes from conversations that I've had with people in recent months. Here's why I say that, because people, and I see it a lot of times happen with younger people, is that what can happen is we get addicted to our doubts. And actually, we do everything we can to nurture our doubts, because we want to keep our doubts alive. You know why? Because as long as we can nurture these doubts in our minds, it gives us an excuse to keep God at arm's length, to where I don't really have to invest and I can still maintain sovereignty and control in my life because I got these big doubts. And so it's convenient to hold on to the intellectual doubt because my heart doesn't want to commit. And so we'll tell people, well, once I get all my T's crossed and I get all my I's dotted and all my questions answered, that's when I'll commit to Jesus. I'm going to tell you the truth. That will never happen. It's never going to happen. You're always going to find something to question, something to doubt. Meanwhile, you've missed out on the most beautiful, most lovely, most transforming, most, pow most powerful thing that you can ever come across in your life, and that is the resurrected Christ. And I'm telling you this, this stuff we sing about every Sunday, you know, we sing about the peace that comes from God and the freedom of the Spirit and the joy of the Lord. This is only going to be words on the screen until you jump into this thing. When you fully invest and dive in head first, that's when this stuff starts to become an experienced reality in your life. But you got to commit. you got to take the risk. And you will never get there if you're still living in the land of doubts. This I don't know. Maybe not. Well, what about this? You'll never tap into the reality of Christ until you commit and jump into it, just as with marriage. 
So there's a time to doubt. There's a time to shut that off. Now, that doesn't mean as a Christian that you're not still going to have questions. Believe me. I got questions all the time. I'm a pastor, for crying out loud. And I got questions all the time. I'm intrigued with this stuff. It just generates questions. Just yesterday morning, I'm over there at the Vanilla Bean, and I'm having a good conversation with somebody, and, and they're asking questions. You know, like, what about all that violence in the Old Testament? Man, there's some ugly stuff in there. What do you think about that? And I'm telling you, I mean, you, you, you stay with Christ long enough, you're going to have these types of questions. But the difference is now you're working on these questions from the inside of the relationship rather than as a, a condition for getting into the relationship. So I just want to encourage, because I believe there's some folks maybe here, maybe listening to this in some ways, you've got enough light, you've got enough evidence. Maybe you're not psychologically certain, but you know enough. But there's always that advantage to keeping one foot out the door. And I believe the Holy Spirit would just say to you lovingly but welcomingly, come on, get in the game. It's time to commit. It's time to jump in this thing. Live out your covenant vows. And trust me. Put your trust in me. I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to forsake you. And that's what faith is. It's saying all my eggs are going in this basket. And I'm going to jump in head first. And that's when you start tapping into the reality of the Christian life. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.